So I, I see a question and answer. Is this working? No. I see question and answers as being a sort of a catch-up period of time when we might have been running faster than our ability to absorb uh, the subjects. In fact, most of the subjects are never completely absorbed. Uh, and so returning to them again and again can be very useful. And a question and answer period gives an opportunity for us to sort of bring up some of the residue areas that may not have uh, set with us so well. Or we could just ask any question at all about our practice that uh, seems relevant. So with that introduction, I open it up to whomever would like to ask anything, if you don't mind. Uh, remembering that I have to say this uh, question, restate the question back uh, into the video. So to think of a question that's concise and uh, exactly what you're asking, if you can. Uh, so that uh, I can sum that up pretty quickly. Anyway. Um, I'm trying to reconcile how um, not investing in, in thinking, conditioned thinking, and conditioned emotion, sort of backing out of that by questioning, can result in a feeling of being, living, sort of uh, being more affected by life or showing up for life. So the question is, why is it that when we start questioning our thoughts and becoming quieter that we may feel more affected by life, but it's not real clear why the thoughts seem to uh, obscure that sense of aliveness and uh, vitality? Well, it's really at the basis of the whole of the Dharma, that question. <clears throat> so uh, I'll take the rest of the period. <laughs> I won't do that. But it is, it is a question that I could spend a long time upon. So let me just, uh, when we first sit down, <clears throat> the instructions are very exact. Yet some of the most uh, difficult instructions we'll ever receive for anything. And that is uh, to uh, notice the difference between an experience that you're having, in this case, fundamentally the breath, and then what it feels like when you're thinking about the breath but not actually being present with it. And almost to a person, a beginning class is confused by those instructions. They say, what do you mean experience and not think? I mean, I, they don't have any reference to the difference between those two uh, contacts. Now, if you want to know or sense how far you've come, uh, then you can look at your, how relevant that is to your own practice. Because in truth, knowing the difference between those two is the summation of the entire practice from beginning to end. In the beginning, it's real obvious when we are lost in thought and not being present to the breath. And then we sort of drag ourselves forcibly back to the experience of breathing we gain a foothold temporary in the breath, with the breath, and then we're off flying again, often many, many times in the course of a single sitting, 
more often than not lost far longer than we are making reference to the breath. And so learning that difference that there is an, there is an experience and then there is an experience when thought about is a, a rather disorienting uh, um, is rather disorienting to us. What does it mean to have an experience to life and not think about it? And what is it? And all of us know what it's like to have an experience of life thought about, well thought about, uh, where thought intrudes. And what you begin to see uh, as the practice develops is that we intrude with our thinking on virtually all experiences. We have just the knowing or the recognition of what something is, is itself a blanket of thought over that experience. And then we have a whole history with that particular object or other objects similar to that, which comes flooding in, in terms of memory. And so we really never see anything exactly as it is. We see it through the coloration of what we have known it to be. And when we see something through the coloration of what we've known it to be, along with the memory also comes our opinions, whether we like something or whether we like it or we don't like it, our attraction or aversion to it. And so we have a kind of a set ready response to an object when it arises in our visual field based upon our previous experience, whether, whether we liked it or not. And so we'll go towards one thing or back away from another. And so that opinionation, we can sum up, as never really allowing a renewed contact because we already know what it is, we've experienced it many times, and we'd rather just move on to something that we appreciate. And so we are then governed by how it is that whether we like something or whether we don't like something. If we like something, we'll lean into it. If we don't like something, we'll forget about it and try to, try to avoid it. And as we begin to tune into our experience at that level, we see that it's a conditioned response to life. It doesn't really allow life in. It's just how we have thought about it. And it sets up a whole stream of thinking in relationship to that liking or not liking. And we never really experience again because our opinions cover over that renewed experience and we're, we, and we just, so we're always meeting life with a uh, sort of a resounding yes or no about it and never really being affected by it once more. Then as the practice takes hold, we get so that we realize that that's no way to live because when we get quieter to and within our experience, we feel the touch of that experience once more upon the, uh, upon the organism, upon us, and our heart begins to respond to that in tender or in sensitive ways that it couldn't as long as we were thinking about it. And it was, it begins to, we begin to get a sense that we can be re-affected by life. We were once affected by it, then we covered it over with a lot of opinions, and now we can, release the need to have to think our way into life and rediscover life in its more primitive or innocent form. And that requires us to be very quiet when we do so because the noisier we are, the more buffered we are to that experience. And what we begin to notice is that our hearts become alive when we aren't talking ourselves out of them. And as our hearts become alive, and we're very careful of how all the reactions which come o cover over that aliveness, we begin to care. We begin to feel 
life once more. We begin to feel appreciative of it, and that's a quality of heart. We begin to feel uh, affected by it. We begin to feel tender towards it uh, and sensitive, a, a level of sensitivity. You can feel the cultural objections we have to each of those words. Why do we have a cultural objection to tenderness? Well, the reason is, is because you're, going, you're not going to want to buy something if you are heart engaged. We have to keep you enamored within the liking and not liking of the world in order for, you, for the market economy to persist. And as soon as you move under that level of response and move to the tender, sensitive quality of being affected by life, your desire, simplicity comes in where it wasn't before and as well as that comes a, a sense of, of appreciation for what you already have, not a need for more acquisition. So culturally, the incentive is for you not to go in that direction. And so areas of ourselves like tenderness, like being gentle, like being kind, are not emphasized in this culture because they move in the opposite direction of where the market economy wants to take us. It's not a good or bad. There's nobody, nobody behind the scenes, a Wizard of Oz, pulling the... It's, we're all in this together. We've all decided that this is the way this culture is going to be lived. But it's not a, much of a life, really, when you live on that sense of acquisition and loss and gain because it's just not guaranteed and it's always competitive. And all the things that we already know about life comes in through that development of it. And what comes in through when we're actually bringing our attention to bear upon it is the opposite of that. Some people tell me uh, in meditation that they have trouble feeling their emotions and I say, okay, you have them. Let's just both agree that you're not devoid of emotion. Let's, but you have to be a tender. Uh, tenderness is a door, an access for your emotions. So when you see something beautiful, sun shining on a leaf or whatever it might be just stay steady there let that experience come in feel the sense of tenderness and that prepares the heart for the other emotions that are in waiting uh, and so that kind of cleaning out the noise through just the appreciation of beauty begins to allow the life of emotions to be revealed now are emotions uh, more uh, consistently true than thoughts? No, because thoughts and emotions go together in a kind of a binding narrative that determined our nature to life. But to be able to, you want, we want to be able to feel them, and some of them are very uh, self-centered emotions, like anger and fear and jealousy and envy and on and on. Others are very heart-bearing emotions, as I just mentioned, like appreciation and generosity and kindness and care. And as we get quieter, the more self-centered emotions become less predominant in our life, and the, more, the quieter, more heart-centered emotions become alive within us, and we begin to feel more connected to life through those emotions. 
but we usually have to go through the self-centered ones to get to the more the, the refined, the more refined emotions. So, life lived by thought, you know. It's, all of us should be on top of that one. All of us should become aware of how a thought-driven life is not fulfilling. That there's some value to it. It makes you prominent in the world of thought. So if you're sophisticated or knowledgeable or learned or opinionated, then those will be, those will be reinforced in the world of thought. And that the world of quietude doesn't reinforce that. And so we lose something when we want to be quiet, but we gain access to a dimension of life that we do not have access to when we are noisy. And we have to make a determination as to which way we want to go. It's that simple. And it's up to each one of us to do it. No one is being uh, coerced in any direction in spirituality. It has to be our own, our own need, our own willingness to move. Yes. Very simple now. Okay. So the first part of that question was about the ideal and the um, the actual, and you can take any uh, any quality that we talk about. And there's an idealization of that, like generosity. She mentioned generosity. And there's an idealization of that where we feel, uh, you know, that you can never give enough. We give out of our own source of inward poverty. And because we feel impoverished as a person, uh, we can never give enough to replenish the sense of, of that inward poverty that we hold as ourselves. And so the first thing that we have to do before we do much else in spiritual work is to heal the wounds of our own child upbringing, of our own childhood. Because those wounds uh, infiltrate and really corrupt our spiritual journey all along the way. Uh, as I've mentioned many times, uh, if, you are, if we are wounded inside uh, and you are a helper, quite uh, likely your helping is coming from that woundedness. And so you need the person uh, for you to not have to feel this and suffer through your wound. So you need the person to want you 
and that perpetuates an ongoing dependency in the person you are helping in order for you to survive and keep yourself from feeling the tortured background that you have come from. And most people that help have some tendency in that direction uh, because that's where they're driven uh, to, to respond because of their own pain. So in spiritual work, we look at our own pain first. We see what's driving us or motivating us towards whatever we're doing. And we get a sense of that source of what it is, the assumptions that are back there telling us that we are uh, needy, that we are uh, unlovable, that we are uh, in need of other people. Whatever the logic of those statements are, we look at that. We feel the pain of them. We start working in a way to begin to uplift that pain so that we can hold it without it being driven by it. And eventually, over a great deal of time and a variety of different methods and ways, we come so that that isn't the burning issue in our life. And now we are ready to help people. Now helping turns into serving. Serving is a very different quality than helping. Serving, you serve from equality. You don't serve from a, from a sense of pity. You serve from equality. And equality can only come when the tortured pasts of our childhood have been mended sufficiently to be able to see the person in front of you and let your heart respond to that person rather than the neurotic quality that many of us have and serving and helping out of that quality. Do you see? So it's a, it's a journey where we begin to recognize why and what it is that we're doing and begins to address that. Uh, when the, if there's any kind of uh, teeter-totter effect in what we're doing, then it's being done for reasons for to be reconciled. We need some sense of reconciliation, and that's the reason the teeter-totter keeps swinging back and forth. But when you're really uh, responding to the service needs of others, you don't feel that way. You don't feel like they're in, that you're the big... Uh, that you're the gratifier for their neediness. You don't feel that way. It just feels like one heart responding to another. It's just a natural, natural response of one heart to another. And so this idealization is because the teeter-totter is being swung in opposite directions based upon our pain. Somebody, when you're equal to someone, you can say, no, you know, I don't have any more to give you. When you're not, you never say that because it, you, we feel so insufficient, we just feel like we can't say no to anyone. And I'm just amazed how many people, uh, I'll tell you that if you're working with the dying, that'll bring it out in you like nothing else. Because how can I say no to someone who is dying? I say no to someone who's dying regularly. Can you come over and see me today? No, I can't. I'm busy. I'm blah, blah, blah. And it's not because I don't want to be there or I'm being hard at all. It's because what I can offer based upon what I have to offer, what I, what, what I have in terms of my capacity, my resilience isn't there. And so I just I set limits. And I use that very poignantly because it shakes people enough to look at their own lives and being able to say no 
within whatever response that you give. So uh, the no of generosity, when you see somebody out on the streets with holding out a cup for a dollar, what's your response to it? What's the, what's the logic of giving or not giving? What's the emotional response that you have to it? Is it compassionate burnout or is it compassionate response that isn't burned out but it's appropriate or is it an idealization? What is it? And how is it? And what is it behind that response? To have an idea of that, to get us assess that on an ongoing basis is very helpful. Now, the second part of that question had to do with the sense of I. And uh, the woman said that she just didn't have any sense of the selflessness that I speak about a lot. Uh, and I would say probably that was true for most of you, if you're honest, that you don't really get a sense of what selflessness is about. Uh, and that's pretty much the way the journey unfolds for a long period of time for most people. But that doesn't mean that the self isn't getting very thin. It may still have the resonance within itself, the power within itself to claim its place in your life. But like a, a sanded piece of wood, over time it gets very thin. And many of you, just in pr doing the practice over time, the sense of self is getting very uh, ephemeral, very nuanced. Or your heart wouldn't be showing up at all. For your heart to be able to respond clearly, non-judgmentally, for, for awareness to be able to have access, there, the, thought, the sense of self has to be thinned considerably. And so much of the early part of practice is thinning that sense of self, not eliminating it. You still claim you're here and that you've always been here and that you'll always blah, blah. But there are moments of quiet. There are moments of great intense feeling, compassion, of kindness. There are moments of generosity that you have not quietly known before. There are quite likely moments in which you are attentive and listening to someone in ways that you have not been able to in the past. Those are all very thinned self layers. And though the sense of self may still claim responsibility for the listening, for the generosity, for whatever it is that, they're, that it's taking credit for, it's really in its absence or in its very nuanced form and expression, its manifestation that those qualities are even available. At some point, at some point there will be a realization of selflessness. When you're sincere, it will come. And it sometimes comes very disorienting. But if you have been prepared, and that's what I try to do for you, is to, all along the way, even in the beginning class, I talk about the eventuality of the realization of selflessness, and when that occurs, if you've been prepared for it, if you've heard about it as something that could happen or will happen in the future in my practice, then when it does happen, it, may, it won't be as, um, it won't be as uh, confusing to you as it might if I had never mentioned it. That's why I mention it regularly. And many of you have actually had that experience where there is disorientation, but I mean, the self is a very resilient ever-ready battery, 
and it keeps moving. So you might have been disoriented for a while and seen very clearly, but it, it has a way of coming back in and readdressing itself and keeping itself going. But once the hole has been blown in it, once there's a big hole in this thing, you can never look at the, uh, you can never take yourself as being as real as you once did. And so that's its value, is that it really blows away uh, the assumption that you have been taking for your whole life. And you think, well, what good is that? Why do I want that? Why do I want that? Well, you may not. But if you want to know what's true, or do you want to know, just live a fabricated, dreamlike, illusory life in which you have acted as if you were true, but in fact that has blocked you from a whole dimension of life that you can't have access as long as you believe in it. And if you hear that, there may be enough curiosity in that statement that you say, okay, so if it's not true, I don't want to live like it is. And when you start bringing your attention to bear upon it, you'll see that it's not. It's an image that we have identified as I. It's an idea believed. And that idea, once believed, has attraction. But it's only because we keep echoing that sense of ownership to virtually every perception we have that it has the traction it has. And as we release the need to have to hold ownership to everything, which you, many of you are doing within your practice, you know, you're not owning your emotions, you're not owning your physical sensations, you're just letting them be present in your experience, then that ownership quality, that lack of of, of signature to everything that happens begins to reveal the true nature of self as an image. So, you know, this will never happen to you if you don't want it to. Or if it does happen to you and you don't want it to, it won't last long. And you'll be right back where you are now. And the reason that you might feel constricted or constricted contained within your spiritual practice quite likely is because you refuse to let go of this particular assumption that keeps you very much bound to each perception in terms of ownership. And there's a very different world out there waiting if you'd like to join. Very different. And if it's not true, I don't want any part of it either. But the only way to get to it is to... The way you get to it is that you prove that what you have taken your life to be up until this point is untrue. That's not true. And when your heart sees that, it doesn't want to live a life of untruth. So it just releases the need to keep doing what it's always done that has been fabricated. And then the unfabricated reality shows itself from there. I mean, we're not fabricating something. It's already fabricated. We're releasing ourselves from what's untrue. Not establishing some kind of fantasy world that we're carving out. Who'd want that? I wouldn't. So that's a half an hour of the 45 minutes. <laughs> yes, sir.
Good. But I'm still such a baby at doing that, and I'm wondering if perhaps you could give me a few tips about low blood. Yeah. Uh, a question has to do with uh, the mind uh, uh, sort of arguing against sitting and so that you start to sit and you find countless reasons or excuses not to sit. Is that correct? Or you fall asleep, which is okay. So, but there are a lot of defenses built up there that sort of keep you from, right? And you find that when you're not judging it, when you really apply the practice in its principle, that sitting becomes pretty effortless, right? Okay, so let's look at what's happening there because it's very important. Uh, you know, the mind uh, has its own agenda for you. And its agenda is pretty much living the life that you've lived. That is one in which the perceptions that you now believe in are reinforced. The sense of thought is extraordinarily important to the mind and its ability to know and to, uh, to opinionate and to uh, have a, a mind full of uh, answers rather than questions. Uh, all of that assurance and security is what the mind is supposed to do for you. It's supposed to make the world a well-known map of how to live. It gets food into your mouth, it gets you home, it navigates you around the globe and uh, has you recognize that the door from the window. Okay, so you're in, in the ability to find your car out there rather than to take someone else's. So it's, it has a functionality and that functionality has a set of defenses that keeps it from becoming dysfunctional. And so when it feels threatened, when it feels like you're doing something that undermines its safety and security, it tries to keep you from doing that. One of its principal ways it operates is towards productivity. Most of us would define a meaningful life as being one that's productive and useful. I've done this today, check off lists, all of that. So when you're about ready to sit down and not do anything, the mind says, well, what about the dishes? What about the vacuuming? What about you know, all the things you could be doing? After this 45 minutes of whatever you're not going to be doing, those things will still be waiting for you. So in essence, the mind is saying it's a waste of time. And because we have been driven by that sense of productivity our whole life, we concede the point and say, well, maybe later, after the dishes, after the vacuuming, and after dot, 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 you never get to it. Okay, so then it takes some discipline just to break through that cycle of events. So we say, okay, I'm going to sit. I don't care what the mind tells me. And you have to have that kind of, in the beginning especially, before you learn its, its defense mechanisms, you have to have, okay, I'm going anyway. I'm just going. Then when you go, it has a whole internal response to get you up off the city. You've, you've beaten it externally. That is, you know, you've, for, you've forsaken the dishes and you're sitting on the mat and now it says, okay, so I know this guy pretty well. <laughs> he doesn't like to be sleepy. And so it turns up the sleep knob. <laughs> and pretty soon you think, why am I sitting? This is ridiculous. I can be in bed for another half an hour, which is its old logic, 
turned into a more satisfying, even better than the dishes, is a good half an hour or more of sleep, and it'll get you up that way. And if it can't do it through sleepiness, it'll do it through restlessness. If it can't do it through that, it'll do it through desire or aversion. It'll find some way called the hindrances for to uh, mandate uh, your uh, journey off and out of meditation. Now, that's why there's the resolve in one of the paramis, aditan, or resolve, that sense of resolve, that I would say 90% of the people stop sitting because they don't have wise resolve. They just, they don't, they haven't crossed a threshold where they have seen the mind sufficiently enough and know about what it brings at you. They succumb to that and it's very, very difficult not to, especially when you're trying to sit alone in your own house, away from others, you don't have group support. All of those different reasons is the reasons that we uh, encourage sangha and community, etc. So this this sense of of resolve is it's like okay, you know, th- this really makes sense to me. It makes sense when I hear Dharma, when I read Dharma. I want to find out if it has any sense, if it makes sense, if. And I have to realize that, not just dabble in it. And so for those of us who are dilettantes, those of us who dig shallow wells, it's going to be very hard because we really work on a pleasure plane principle. As long as the meditation is paying off, I'll do it. When it's not paying off or is difficult, I'm not going to do it. And you have to have more resolve than that. You have to keep digging until you hit the wellspring. Right? And that takes a while. In general, uh, it, it can take a year or two for a new student to really have sufficient stability of mind and having gone through the whole, the, all the variety of states of mind so that they feel they uh, have the uh, empowerment to sustain the continual attacks the mind does in terms of what it says you need to do as opposed to what you are doing. That's why it's hard. This is really, really hard. I often think, I look out on a beginning class, I think, oh, how many, how many people will sustain themselves? Not very many. Not very many. I, but what do you do? You, you know, the, I don't know which ones will, so I can't say, okay, everybody out of here. <laughs> You don't know who you're talking to, and it surprises you. It surprises you who does, and who. Well, look, you probably are surprised, <laughs> and it, and it's beautiful to see when it does. I, just, just that. Yes, sir. So the question is about unpleasant mind states and questioning them. This is another extremely important topic. I could spend a long time uh, talking about that and how mind states are, you know, really, remember those old viewfinders? You know, you put a card in and 
it clicks one picture and now you're at the Grand Canyon, now you're at Yellowstone, you know, it's like that. And you're really there, you know. And so the mind states are like viewfinders like that. Each state of mind depicts a reality that is so convincing, even though they may be in complete opposition to the, just the previous picture. Doesn't matter. We believe it totally. And you just, I mean, it is amazing to me. And we have cards, stacks of these cards. That we, and we have a narrative that goes along with each card. Because we've been to the Grand Canyon, we've been to Yellowstone, we've been to all of these different places. Uh, and so we have a backlog knowledge of each state of mind. And so the emotion will come up in a state of mind is more than just a simple, it's more than a simple thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an emotion. It's a, something has keyed off often. It's been in our system long enough that it's formed an attitude and a disposition, kind of a posture to life. It has a whole set narrative around I and relationship to what's going on and my ability to handle what's going on. And so it has a, a, a very strong story it has a very strong emotion and a cacophony of sound around the state of mind. And then we say, you know, that I am depressed or whatever it is. Lonely, grieving, whatever it might be. So at some point, uh, I just the whole, um, I just didn't like being a puppet to it all. <laughs> I don't know how to... I mean, I literally, you just trace your day and you just find yourself acting happy and springy and delighted and then miserable. And, and you just go, what? I can't connect the dots. The dots just don't connect. These are separate pictures. These are separate realities. And I don't see how they even cross over. So my own way was uh, to ask questions about them that brought forth the awareness in which I could then decipher the truth uh, and validity of that particular state of mind. Uh, and so I would, I would ask questions that would freeze the state of mind so that it wouldn't continue to perpetuate, perpetuate itself in action of body, speech, and mind. So I would say, you know, where is, what's, what do I say? What's the, what's going on here? I can't always remember the questions. <laughs> What's happening here? Or where's the truth in this moment? Or uh, where I, something that I know is not a state of mind that is itself a component part of awareness like contentment. I would say, where's the contentment in this moment? I would call forth something that was everlasting knowing that what was, it was facing was in, in transition was not lasting. So it was very helpful for me, well, like I would say, where's the contentment in this moment? When you're irritated or annoyed or aggravated or something, where's the contentment in this moment? You can't find it. If you just, in the state of mind, you can't find contentment. But calling that, encouraging that forth, the, there's a, the viewfinder, the picture has a rim around it now. It has something, it's like a, an eclipse, something behind it is showing itself around that state of mind that sent you sense as being content. And then you go, oh, and then less energy goes into validating the state of mind and if you, when you do, anytime you divest 
your energy in one area, that energy goes into what's left there, which is the background of that discontentedness, which is contentedness. And that contentedness starts walking its way forward and you begin to see the dissolution of the state of mind and the resolution of awareness. Because all you're doing is bringing awareness there. And so you, and you go through that a number of times and you begin to think, my God, this is ever present. I never have to be, I never have to throw my energy into this state of mind as being true. That, after a great deal of introspection, observation, questioning, seeing these states of mind coming and going based upon the conditions in which they have arisen, all of that, just they're, they're very flimsy. They're like a very flimsy house of cards. Uh, and then they move on to a different house. And, but there's something so resilient back there, something so true, something so everlastingly present that you begin to believe in much more so than these states of mind. And, and you just start you just start calling it forth. It doesn't require much, it just requires us not involving ourselves in the noise and the narrative and the story of the state. It, it allows us to, the quiet allows that background to come to foreground. The noise keeps the background as background and the foreground as true. But if we're willing to be quiet with that state, then the, it switches. It's a figure ground switch. And then you, you start knowing yourself. Now the question about self comes in there because the self is fulfilled within a state of mind. It's miserable. And it likes that. It likes to know itself through its own drama. And so when you're calling forth the stability that's behind there, you're actually calling for something much deeper than the image of yourself that has been enslaved to these states. So when you're calling forth the awareness, you know, when you say, is there, where's the contentment in this moment? Then this sense of contentment starts coming forth and you get quiet. When, whenever there's quiet, you can be assured that the sense of self is very thin. And as the quiet gets larger and looms even more, the sense of self will have to concede the point of its own obscuring that quiet and releases itself to quiet itself, to quiet and stillness itself. And that's the way the practice goes. But nothing's going to happen if you just keep going through the day one viewfinder after another, it just doesn't, I mean, there's the Grand Canyon again. <laughs> and on and on and on it goes. So I encourage you, I encourage you towards that. I mean, we all need to know where this thing is headed. We're not just uh, trying to have more uh, sublime states of mind. Practice can go in that direction. As you get refined in your uh, 
in your tranquility, in your calm, in your uh, generosity, these states become enamored. These are very alluring states. You know where you just where you just you just feel the the state in its pure form. Now that's not going to last, but there are some extraordinary purific, purified states, and they're very very seductive. So the mind in its resolution will keep you entertained in that way, and you think, well, this is what I really wanted. I really wanted unmitigated calm and so then you feel it and you go wow the problem is that it's only an experience and an experience in its very nature as someone having an experience isn't completely content because you can only get as close to an experience as like a movie you know it that you're still in the audience and that isn't fulfilling to a heart that wants completion or wants true contentment. And so it can be totally, I mean, every cell in your body can be uh, reverberating with something that's so sublime and subtle and seductive. And you go, eh. Right? I, that uh, happened to me once in loving kindness. So I was doing, uh, I don't know how many weeks of loving kindness, and I entered loving kindness. I mean, it was like the sublime state of loving kindness where I thought this was like, if there's a place to go that is loving kindness, that there was nothing blocking it. It, was, it felt 360, and, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And I was there for about, I don't know, five minutes or something. I go, no, it's just not enough. <laughs> and I don't mean it all it's just that no experience is there, there's no experience and I, I've always had that as a backfall to my that experience just doesn't provide ultimate satisfaction and I thought everyone had that as sort of the way that they could discern the truth of experience but I have since learned that that's not the case that most people can't conceive of what it would mean not to experience and to be fulfilled on a different level, different dimension entirely. And so the only, only knowing experience, you get very seduced by experience. But sp experience requires an experiencer. It requires somebody outside the experience having the experience. How close can you have an experience? Think of the most sublime experience you've ever had. How close were you? It was great not taking that away from you, but how close was it? See, it was still happening. And that's a buffer. That's a separation. And this is, this journey ends separation. Ends separation. Yes. Going towards what? The, the no self kind of, I don't know, realm. Um, is that still 
Yes. Okay, so that's important. Uh, in terms of no self, she's wondering how you get things done and how you are safe, how you can be safe. See, see that that's the mind's logic is that you you know you give me up, you're not going to have any safety or any protection at all, and you're not going to get anything done, and you'll be a couch potato. You know, and so there's a the logic that keeps us within the system is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and it, and so you know we, we we want it. There's a certain aspect of us that is drawn out in spiritual work, but the logic of the mind is is one of the hardest and most transfixed uh, arguments that uh, in, in borders uh, that obscures the final resolution of this thing. And there, I can I can talk to you about what there is there, but. That's not going to alleviate the anxiety of it of the questions you have about it. So I'll, I'll mention we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it, but I just want to mention this. That's where realization comes. I can't talk you out of the mental defenses that keep you in the logic of of your view of life, of the view of separation. It's impossible. You have to dare yourself out of it in some way. And the way you do that is that you have seen in every avenue, wherever you've looked, you've seen the, the limitation of the way of life that you're now living. And it just doesn't hold the value and the excitement and the, it doesn't hold the, the enamoration that you once gave it. And it's kind of like you, you aren't out of it, but you don't really want to be in it. You don't know what to do, and you kind of bottom out. There's a sense of, of saying, geez, I don't know, like maybe it's just going to be hopeless. And really, that's a very hopeful state, though it doesn't feel that way uh, to most people when they go through it. But when you have given up the logic of the mind, when you have given up the belief that the self is going to, self-will and volition will get you what you want, that if you just apply enough energy and enough concerted effort and and you just keep doing that, that the world is yours. I and mean, that's the promise. That's the promise. That's the Western promise. Now we're coming to the end of that promise and you can see that there is an end. But it doesn't keep us from believing it and asserting our will upon situations. But as you, I mean, just in observing what you're doing and the limitations of what you're doing, it begins to collapse on itself as a false promise. And what we have to be very careful of at the moment that is to assume the blame for why it's not working. Oh, I wasn't up to the task of making it work. Or, of course, if you know, if I was just smarter or just this or just that, then I could have had what any number of people who seem to be successful have. So you have to be very careful of that because this system, this system cannot be fulfilling. It doesn't depend upon how smart you are or how agile or how skillful. It's never going to be fulfilling. So take the world's greatest prophets or, I don't know, the people who are at the top of your projections. Sit down with them and talk to them one-on-one, -on -one and you'll see that their life isn't any more fulfilling than yours is. It has more pleasure, because they can buy it, but it's not more fulfilling in its essence. 
So you get you get so that you know you just kind of give up on making it work in this direction. Now that you are moving out of the sense of self when you're doing that, it doesn't feel like it, people. So that's you know you don't think you're like you're coming out of the cocoon and you know, but because we keep claiming reference to everything we do as self, you have many moments throughout the day in which you are not involved with yourself. But you come out of those claiming self-involvement. Oh, that was a quiet moment I just had. Well, the quiet moment was without you. You weren't there. But if you keep claiming everything, even your absence, there's never going to be a time, you see, you just keep, you cut, all the dots get, get uh, filled. So, as this starts um, moving in a wise direction, and then what you start relying on, and it's not a, uh, it's not like a, a line where you're, and then across it. It's just you start discovering discernment, awareness. All of you have touched it. You you haven't given it its its true value yet, quite likely, because you have to stay there for a while to see what value it holds. But as you're drawn more and more into it, you'll begin to see that my life isn't going to hell. I'm not becoming a couch potato. I'm still staying very socially engaged from a different place. I'm staying very politically active, if that's your calling. Some of you will, some of you won't. You don't really know what what you're going to look like at the end, but you will not be passive. There's no such thing as a passive heart. The heart's a very engaged organ. And it doesn't stop being engaged because it's no longer coming from neurosis. It's, be, it's much more complete and expansive. And so as you begin to see that your life is, is the sense of self is thinning and, your, and more awareness comes into your life, you see, you, you start giving over some of the control that you have taken and giving it to discernment. And you, you say, okay, so I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move from conditioning. I'm going to let my heart move me. And pretty soon it does, and off you go. And you begin to see that there's two ways that the body and mind can move. The body can move from conditioned experience or can move from its sense of being affected, being engaged, being in, abiding in life. It's, life is in movement, you know. The wind doesn't stop blowing because it's not a person. It's blowing. The flowers are all growing. They're not claiming, you know, I'm a daisy. They're, to grow, they're growing be- beautifully on their own. And so do we. And we're a part of that movement, that fabric of life. And when we release the need to cocoon ourselves off, that life called us joins. It's a joining factor. And now the wind of our own spirits are part of the winds of the environment. And we move from that wind. So, I mean, so you, you, start, you start getting this, but you'll still claim reference. You know, it's like, God, I had the most amazing hour of awareness where I was just being spontaneous and creative. I wonder how I can do that again. See, so you've, you've ascribed it under your influence and control. You write down everything you did before that happened and then you try to replicate it and you can't. 
and so you just keep you, you know you just keep trying to reconfigure it back into the old system it was the elimination or stepping out of the old system that gave you the power to the freedom that you had access to and it's, so it's a faith it's a movement of faith and at some point it feels like a movement of faith it says i don't i don't i don't care i'm not going to do it i'm not going to claim reference i'm not going to try to control i'm not going to claim that i did everything I'm just going to let it be done. Just move as I move. Yeah. And that's the way it looks. Okay, all. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.